Hello, and welcome to this episode of Nonstop Nonprofit. On today's episode, we have one weird secret to help you avoid overwhelm during stressful fundraising moments. See, when my friend John Delane agreed to come on the Nonstop Nonprofit podcast, we had planned a conversational angle to keep the discussion from spinning out. Because if you know podcasters, you know we have a hard time staying on topic. When we entered the conversation, the topic was John's 12 rules for fundraising, an antidote to tactical overwhelm during the end of year fundraising season. See, as a longtime fundraising consultant and Summit Ministries direct mail and digital fundraising manager, not to mention one of 2023's top 25 fundraising experts in America, John has relied on these rules to help himself and many fundraisers he consults with stay the course when it all gets to be a little too much. But as we got into it, we had to ask, was it 12 rules or one weird secret? Because as we dug into John's guidelines, we discovered that everything he shared pointed back to an illuminating universal truth. And that, my friends, is as close as we'll ever get to clickbait in a podcast introduction. So listen in to today's podcast to discover what John and I uncover. It is your number one priority to ensure your business can continue to deliver on its mission, whether it's this year, next year, and beyond. So we're creating this inclusive environment, building between diverse communities to ensure that our young people can thrive. I'm always so baffled when I when I do webinars. There's always somebody at the end who raises their hand and says, I'm the development director. Should I have access to the budget? I'm always like, yes, you've got to know that. The best thing you can ever do as a nonprofit leader is spend as much money as possible on your story. Then you're doing it wrong. Okay. That is unacceptable and that is not the way to run a board. The best thing that we can do is just raise as much money as possible and then give it to the people around the world. If you're going to be sustainable, you have to have a multi-channel strategy to reach all of these different generations of donors however they want to be reached. One of the principal values that we carry as an organization is to lift grace over guilt. And we believe that grace is the greatest agent for change that anyone can ever experience. We all need each other in terms of other nonprofits working together to solve things. The more nonprofits can give their donor base that experience of the impact that's being made on the ground level, there's nothing else that you have to give someone. This is Nonstop Nonprofit. John, again, it's great to have you here today. Since we met, I have been so excited to have this podcast episode. I have so many questions lined up for you, so much to dig into. But first things first, you're, you know, top 25 fundraising voices in America right now. How has that changed your life? You know, David, it hasn't changed my day to day a ton. I'm honored that nonprofitfundraising.com named me to their list. It was exciting to wake up one Wednesday morning and see that list drop and be able to share what I've learned about relationship forward fundraising with a broader audience through LinkedIn. So John, you have a ton of you come you have a ton of experience. You have a really unique uh, voice in the space. I'm so excited to dig in, but before we go much deeper, can you just share your background. What got you into the nonprofit sector? What has your experience been like? What have you done as you built your your nonprofit career? Sure. Well, I'll start off with a little bit of advocacy work that I did when I was in high school and college. I had the chance to travel around the United States doing work with high school students in civic engagement. 
I worked with an organization that ran government camps in state capitals. So I traveled from Alaska to Florida and a number of states in between helping individuals identify the opportunities that they had to articulate their beliefs as high schoolers within state government. That was a a delightful experience. I learned a lot about how issue advocacy works and how advocating for values is possible for more people than we realize. And so that led into a brief stint in political work. I worked in Michigan state legislature and on the campaign trail in Texas. And that's a grueling, it's a grueling process. And I have a lot of respect for the people that make a a full career out of that. But I found my path into the nonprofit world, still wanting to be an advocate for values that I hold dear and working with people who share those values. So the natural crossover from contacting everyone in sight for a political campaign was contacting everyone in sight for fundraising initiatives. Awesome. Yeah. Over, obviously you've, you've had a pretty robust career. You've done a lot of things in the sector already. And I mean, you're still early enough in your career. You've got quite a path ahead of you. One of the things that I think is so exciting about this conversation, and one of the things I've been looking so forward to unpacking is, is the fact that you've really invested in a personal brand. And this is something that, you know, everyone in the for-profit sector is doing. They're trying to be thought leaders. They're trying to produce content. They're trying to make a name for themselves. But it's something that I haven't seen come to the nonprofit sector quite as prolific. But you really do it well. You you have great content. You share great content. You're very insightful with what you share. And I just I don't know many other leaders that are investing in that like you are. So first of all, thank you for sharing your insights and your wisdom with people like me and and the rest of us listening on LinkedIn. But also, I want to dig into that and ask you some questions about what it's like been building a personal brand. So John, first question, uh, going real basic here. What was it that got you started posting content on LinkedIn? Totally. I'm happy to say that I, I had a personal commitment as a challenge from Anthony Jones, he does uh, keynote speaking all around the country about the power of LinkedIn and why today in 2023 and the last few years are actually the good old days of LinkedIn. And so if we're not taking advantage of the opportunity that presents itself to us now to build that digital real estate, we're missing out. Fun fact, I actually worked with Anthony Jones when he was, I think he was director of development at Ducks. Um, So the agency I was at was working with Ducks. And he was like just starting his LinkedIn consulting stuff, but also at Ducks. He's got some great content. It's funny, I, not a direct personal challenge, but he was one of the first reason, per, people that I saw. I was like, hey, there's, there's actually value outside of personal gain to posting content on LinkedIn and, and sharing experiences and sharing resources, much like you've been doing. I do have another question too, is how has the personal brand that you've been building and the content you've been producing made an impact at your work at Summit Ministries, if if it has at all? That's a great question, David. So one of the things that I set out to do in building a personal brand on LinkedIn was to connect with industry professionals who knew way more than I did about a specific technical aspect of the work that we do. And so as a day, day in and day out annual fund manager and man who manages a major donor portfolio at Summit Ministries around the Midwest... I realized that there are people that spend their whole careers dedicated to 
conversion rate optimization on giving pages or email campaign management or opportunities for wealth analytics and screening and mm-hmm. data modeling and, and all of this. And LinkedIn offered the opportunity to have one-to-one conversations with thought leaders that would have taken years to identify and scrape uh, their email address out of the ether and, and send them uh, an email and get their attention. So now we can engage in organic conversations mm-hmm. and elevate the, the level of talent that's available to us ad hoc at the day job at, at some ministries. That's awesome. I really appreciate the fact that you went in with the mindset of, I'm doing this to help grow a network and build impact for the organization I work for, but also for the people on the other end. Like There may be experts in, in this field that don't know what I do in fund management or as a major gift officer and, and building mutual value. It's a trend that I'm seeing come to the nonprofit sector that for the first time, I think we're leading the charge in. And I'm so excited to see. So the concept is building cooperative systems amongst organizations that would traditionally be competitors. So like David founded a, an organization called Spoken Gospel. They produce spoken word, poetry, and and video devotions. He sat down with Our Daily Bread, who does almost the exact same thing. So they could collaborate on content, collaborate on mission, But then they decided, hey, let's just pool our donors because we're going after the same pie. So rather than try to split the slice, we're going to have the whole pie and just ask donors to fund the global effort and we'll we'll distribute funds. So like that's the concept. Right. So, John, is I'm curious, have you seen some of that collateral come out of your work with sharing content, sharing your your experiences on LinkedIn? Yeah, I've had I've had new relationships built not only on the service side but also on the the funder side. David, interacting with individuals who resonate with values for your organization, that'd be the challenge that I I look towards executive directors and directors of development who are thinking about creating content. Don't don't be shy about sharing your values. You become that one of one voice when you layer on your professional experience with the values that you hold on behalf of your organization or personally. And I've been able to initiate conversations with individuals who've been served by our work at Summit Ministries. And then it turns out they were the president of a 20 million plus funding organization that that made grants. And we were able to submit a grant proposal and, and keep that conversation going with that individual. I applaud organizations that can source natural collaboration opportunities. The sharing of donors is one Rubicon that nonprofits hesitate to cross all day. But program program overlap in sharing of resources, being a, a convener of, of talent or services, man, those those opportunities become much more apparent when you have real relationships with people at other organizations. Yeah. So John, we're we're kind of sitting in this time now where you're in the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, but they're on the other the other end of the rainbow, you had to start this at some point. Did you get any pushback when you started posting publicly on LinkedIn and talking about your experience and, and building that personal brand? Did you get any pushback internally at Summit or pushback from any other sources? Thankfully not. I have I have a, a ton of autonomy and oversight from our VP at the organization where he encourages individuals 
to do the best that they can uh, and function in a high trust environment. And so just in getting started, you know, one of the key frameworks is, hey, if you can sharpen your saw through application in other formats, go for it. Because in the economy, the digital economy that we're in right now, there's so many opportunities. It's hard to keep track of them all. And if you can be an effective advocate for your organization through personal brand opportunities or, or gig work or things like that, I think that really brings a heightened level of skill to the, quote, main organization that uh, an individual works for. Yeah, I think it's interesting transition because I remember earlier in my career, we would be you know, set down as you're starting your job, you're sitting with your HR day one training, and you're all but told, don't post publicly anything about what you do professionally. Right. And now we're at a place and, and I'm the same way with and like I'll sit down and when we bring new staff members on at fundraise, I'll be like, look, you're the best distribution channel I have to communicate the value our platform brings or share our message. Right. Because your personal brand is going to reach exponentially more people than our corporate brand ever will. Long gone are the days where corporate branding and anything outside of, you know, paid advertising gives you the reach that a personal brand can. So I think it's so interesting to hear that and refreshing to hear that you didn't get pushback early on because it gives me hope that as more people start to start to take on things like this and step into sharing their experiences and, and sharing their thoughts more vocally through platforms like LinkedIn or other social media channels, that they're going to be seen as actually leaning in to work at their day job rather than having it be a distraction from their day job. Yeah, David. So as, as, I, hear, as I hear that comment, one of the things that it makes me think of is this opportunity that we have in the 21st century as societal trust erodes to lean into relational trust in an environment of decision-making and in getting information. There's, there's an overwhelming amount of information available to us on the internet. And while information used to be scarce, think buying a set of encyclopedias, now the organization of information is scarce. That's why we see curated lists of the best leaf blowers to buy in the fall of <laughs> of the fall of 2023. And so personal recommendations are, are more highly valued. Mm -hmm. And that, that's something that I think the, the speed of trust that Stephen Covey talks about um, in the book of the same name, he talks about how high trust environments are able to move more quickly and at lower cost. Mm -hmm. And so when you have a personal brand, you're able to move in a environment of high trust because you've built through repeated exposure, a trusting relationship with your audience and the individuals that you interact with online. Mm -hmm. And so that translates into your day-to-day -day work, either at a nonprofit or, or a company, and that gives people opportunities they would not have otherwise had. I think that's, that's really exciting. And it, it does contribute a little bit to outsourced epistemology. How do you know things are true? Um, because so often now we, we take personal recommendations from people we trust over corporate voices or corporate uh, accounts in media or, or in current events. And so building a personal brand gives you a platform to interact with, with other people in a new way. And I, I see nonprofits that do that well. It often happens in uh, major supporter relationships 
Someone will call an organization that they care about on a specific issue to get the inside scoop from the person that they trust there. And the personal brand is going to speed that process along. Yeah. And it's so true that the trust economy and, and leaning into to people or organizations you know and trust. Case in point, I was working with a ministry about a month ago now that has a very prominent presence in Israel. And during the the start of that conflict, their donors weren't going to news outlets. They were coming to their executive director and their their contacts at the ministry because they knew they had people in Israel. They knew they had people who were experiencing it real firsthand in real time and getting their information from people they knew and trusted personally, or at least felt like they knew and trusted personally. So I think that's such an interesting take on how the economy is shifting from a clout economy to a trust economy. Kind of bringing this personal or bringing this home for us. Let's assume like as people are listening, like, man, I, I, I think I should start posting LinkedIn, Instagram, wherever it is. Like I should start posting, but maybe it has some of the fear that they don't have the right experience or they, they're not as smart as the thought leaders posting content every day, or they're not as creative as someone who like you who who can post a new idea every day. But if someone wanted to to get started posting on LinkedIn, what advice would you have for them? I think the best way to start creating content online is to respond to people that you respect in your industry. And so if you were to identify three to five leaders that you respect and watch their content and interact with them and try to add value to their audience, you're interacting with people that have similar values to you. Otherwise, they wouldn't be following someone you respect. And then you're identifying your unique voice in the marketplace, responding to some of their ideas. And so those those comments can serve as the starting point for some original content of yours. And then the other thing that I would recommend in getting started is have a perspective of documenting what you're already doing, but document it through the lens of your core values. Maybe you have three to five relationship values or three to five nonprofit values that speak to you and that emulate the mission and vision of your organization, documenting what you're doing day to day through the lens of those values, it's going to be really powerful and attract people to your cause. That's awesome. And now, enjoy this break from your friends at Fundraise, the nonprofit industry's most innovative fundraising platform. Fundraise provides exceptional, innovative, and friendly fundraising technology focused on nonprofit growth. Made for fundraisers by fundraisers, our state-of-the-art platform integrates every core aspect of front and back-end fundraising management into a convergent platform perfect for nonprofiteers like you. Every day, we celebrate nonprofits like UNHCR and National Wildlife Federation as they trust fundraise to power fundraising campaigns around the world. Warning, we go through a lot of confetti. Get started raising the funds and the fun at fundraise.org. That's F-U-N-R-A-I-S-E dot O-R-G. Now that you've heard how Fundraise can level up your fundraising game, let's get back to the conversation. I'm going to pivot us here 
to a different subject, but I think there's so much meat in what we just talked about in, in personal branding and sharing insights, sharing wisdom through channels like LinkedIn or blog long form content or video content, like whatever that you like someone decides like this is my medium, this is my channel. There's so much value in sharing and building a personal brand and sharing your experience. Part of that is I, I want to dig into to the next subject because it's part of something you've been building with your content as a, as a thought leader and, and has been building your personal brand. So you've been building a net, uh, a framework, um, some might even call it a manifesto, right? To help combat overwhelm and burnout, which is such a critical issue in our sector. Uh, and I want to dig into it because really, you know, it's the final countdown. End of year fundraising is upon us. If anyone has a reason to be overwhelmed or burnt out, it's someone like you. You're a new dad. You're leading fundraising for a major organization. You're leading conversations across different channels and, and thought leaders. You're going to conferences. You're trying to wrap up, but then also have all of the fun social life that comes with this time of year. So I want to dig into this because it's something that I've taken a liking to and, and a passion on is, is helping helping nonprofiteers succeed this time of year without sacrificing the fun of this time of year, right? So can you just give us, you know, real quick an overview of your 12 rules for fundraising? Sure. I'm happy to. I've been wrestling with this in relation to the ambient anxiety and overwhelm that I experience in working with clients and with working with coworkers at Summit Ministries and around, around the internet, essentially. I mean, everyone's doing multiple jobs and they have no shortage of overwhelming opportunities and tactics for, for fundraising out, outreach efforts, fundraising implementation, Every single platform has another pitch or an angle. And one layer above that are principles of relational engagement that allow us to focus our efforts around building one-to-one -one connections with donors. And so what I've endeavored to do with the 12 rules for fundraising is document some of those that I found in in the course of my different roles in fundraising. I've had the opportunity to sit in a direct mail chair, in a digital fundraising chair, in a major donor chair, in a director of development chair, helping a small organization reach a million dollars uh, in revenue for the first time. And what I found is if you can take one action to help someone feel like a hero to your organization every single day, you're on the path towards success in fundraising. And sometimes that happens when you're a full-time fundraiser and you need to make sure that that's a donor. Sometimes you're an executive director and you can only dedicate one to two or three hours a week towards fundraising. You can still take one single action every single day to make someone feel like a hero to your organization. Internally, externally, your volunteers, your donors, that's my rallying cry amidst all of the other tactics and opportunities that are out there. There's a number of other rules that I'll be expanding on in the, the coming months in essay format. I want to bring the psychology and tactics and application of these to the broader public because we're just, we're faced with an overwhelming array of opportunities. And how do we, 
How do we choose between them on behalf of the people that we have a fiduciary responsibility to as our donors and our stakeholders at the the nonprofit organization? You know, you're talking about overwhelm and all of the different things available to us, all the different things we can do, all of the different things that are good things that are potentially the right thing to do. And there are so many guides to how to get it all done and have a zero-sum inbox, how to do more with less. And we're not going to unpack how to do more with less. I'm tired of that conversation. But what I really like that you just said is it boils down to one simple principle. If you can do one thing to make one person feel like a hero to your organization a day, you're on the path to success. And everyone can do one thing a day, right? You're not doing more with less. You're not doing it. You're not boiling the ocean and getting home in time for dinner. This is like, if I do that one thing, my day was successful. I'm on the path to success. And it's it reminds me of uh, another principle, principle that Warren Buffett does is every day he gets to work, he has his legal notepad, he writes down all of his things, and then he circles the three most important things he has to do. And that's all he does. If you can get into the office, you can get to work and you can do you do your three most important things that are on your to-do list, you're already successful, more successful than 90% of people. And you're you're on your way to achieving great success for yourself, for your organization. Uh, and I think that that piece in it is is the refreshing part is when we can simplify what it means to be successful, particularly in a in a season where everything feels like it's on fire. I think that's that's the point that I want to create a rally and cry around. So I do have to ask, as you've been studying these principles and assembling them and, and preparing to go deeper on them, how have you been applying them in your day to day work, and how have you seen that make a change? Sure, great question. One of the things that I've, I've recognized in both my work at, at Summit Ministries and in the opportunity that my partner Evan and I have to uh, work with clients through our strategic fundraising plan product is you know, adopting these best principles, but then looking for ways to move towards relationship with our stakeholders. And so here's the thing, David. I look at organizations that are running flat out and everyone is frustrated about the limits that are on their calendar, the limits that are on their budget, the limits that are on maybe their data structure, the you know fact that we don't have complete email address segmentation or or whatever it happens to be at the the organization and when we when we take a look at what are the opportunities that present themselves to us because of those limits, it changes the the conversation to what's possible. And so I want to encourage people, when you look at the limits of your organization, there is an opportunity that's apparent within them. It may not seem like it at the moment, but it is there. So I'll I'll share a quick story from American football history, and we'll see if uh, maybe that inspires some, some conversation. Bill Walsh, wasn't always a legendary football coach. He became the head coach of an expansion team, the Cincinnati Bengals in the 1960s. And he got all of the cast off players from other football teams that no one wanted. The way that it was described was a comically inadequate roster of players. And so he had to reimagine his, his offense strategy around individuals that couldn't run the football, that couldn't block and he had, he had to go through a process of recognizing that limit and asking what is possible because of this limit. And so he, he created a strategy built around his quarterback, Virgil Carter, 
who couldn't throw the football very far. And so they had to have wide receivers that ran 10 to 12 yards out into specific places for Virgil to pass the ball to them. And that became known as West Coast offense. And Bill Walsh took it with him to the San Francisco 49ers a few years later. They drafted Joe Montana. And those two went into the Hall of Fame with this new strategy, the West Coast offense, which transformed the way the entire game was played. And it all started because he had a comically inadequate roster of players on his team in the 1960s. The opportunity is there for organizations that are small to be scrappy and and to move into one-to-one relationships or to ask people questions in new ways because maybe their tech stack isn't set up in the right way. But there are opportunities that are apparent when we take our, our eyes off of the limits and put them onto the positive growth strategies that are, are there for us. I'm just going to say, what other podcasts can you listen to where you get to go deep on fundraising strategy and talk about the start of the West Coast offense? Like, come on, guys. This is, this is, this is a unique episode that's going to go down in the record books here at Fundraise. So it's fun. thank you for, for bringing that, that piece, my, you know, my football enthusiast heart is just so happy right now and i'm super distracted because i'm thinking about the west coast offense and how my football coaches in days past would try to rally us because we were the the comically inadequate team i have a i have a nonprofit example david for for that so leah crawl wrote a book recently about innovating for social change and she shares an excellent story in there about an organization called world reader And they had an opportunity, a dream opportunity, I'll say, to partner with one of the biggest companies in the world, Amazon. And Amazon gave them Kindle e-readers to do outreach in West Africa, in in the country of Ghana. They they piloted their e-reader program with school children there. Nearly 500 school children loved the e-readers and they brought them with them to class but then they brought them with them to, to recess. And the e-readers weren't set up to be robust enough to withstand elementary school recess. And so they were breaking all over the place. That was an inherent limit to the pilot program. But what that did was it forced the energy and innovation aspects of World Reader into developing an e-reader app, which could run on any any device that an individual already owned. And now today there's over 185,000 people around the world that are using that app that came out of the quote unquote failed pilot in, in Ghana, West Africa. And so the opportunity, the opportunity is there to learn even when something seems to be a bit of a failure. I really like that story and really glad we got to dig into one of the, the, this is one of the concepts I really wanted to dig in with you is this, this concept of embracing your limits and being okay with that. Because when you understand your limits, you're able to operate confidently, right? Another piece of your 12 fundraising principles that I really want to spend some time talking about because, you know, you know me, I love a good hot take is advancing the donor's hero story. I have some things that I want to unpack here, but I want to hear what the, the, the idea is behind that principle. Sure. So this, this principle is one that emerges from 
Dr. Russell James, one of the primary researchers in planned giving activation around the country. If, if you've never had a conversation with him, David, I recommend that you do. Uh, and all of the listeners, if you haven't connected with Dr. James on LinkedIn, go send him a, a request and he will send you hundreds of pages of primary research about what people think about as they're considering planned giving opportunities while they lay in a, a functional MRI machine, an fMRI tube, their, their brain goes wild when they, they think about their, their legacy planning. But he conceptualizes it in this way. You need to advance the donor's hero story. And he's, he's not advocating that the donor is the hero or that you're the hero or, or any of these other things. There are lots of hot takes around that. But the reality is that uh, the psychologist Carl Jung and Eric Neumann point out that individuals view the world through the lens of their own story. And they're the protagonist in their own story. And when we can help facilitate the next iteration of their character development as a nonprofit, we're helping them self-actualize as an individual. And that can be really powerful. And in many cases, it leads them to greater involvement with your mission. So it brings up the subject. I think that a lot of people listening are going to go, well, does that mean I need to make the donor the hero of my fundraising appeals? Because it brings up mm-hmm. this, you know, this very widely debated, is the donor the hero? Is the organization the hero? Is the person receiving help the hero for getting the help they need? When we bring in this psychological factor of like, and obviously people have a lived experience where they're the protagonist and it's their values that brought them to the organization to invest in the cause that the organization addresses. Whose perspective do we focus on when we're saying, when we're writing a fundraising appeal or an annual report or an impact statement? Do we go all in here and say, hey, it's donor first, the donor's the hero? Or do we go to the other end of the spectrum and say, hey, it's, it's the person who's getting help, they're the hero? Or is it, you know, we're the organization, we're providing the service, we're the hero. That's a great, great way to think through where are we at when we look at the, the resolution to the conflict. And maybe that's, maybe that's where we'd want to take it from, from a perspective of how do we articulate a message in an environment where we don't want to minimize the agency of the people that we serve in order to elevate the role of someone who's funding the work that we do. And so if you think about the, there are different ways to frame the problem of that, that your organization serves. I have spent a lot of time with the story brand marketing framework mm-hmm. and the story brand guides that are certified in teaching that. And the way that they talk about it is there are external problems, say someone is hungry, There are internal problems, say they're anxious about the uh, source of their next meal, and there are philosophical problems. Say, for example, it's wrong that children in my country should go to bed hungry after school. And an organization can articulate those problems in different ways and provide the solution to that from the perspective of the donor who's helping solve a philosophical philosophical problem from a staff member at the organization who's helping to uh, provide the dignity and comfort of knowing that the internal problem is going to be solved. And from the perspective of the individual being served, 
that their external problem is actually going away. And so there are different ways to, to take it. Like I said earlier, I, I wouldn't want to minimize the agency of an individual who's receiving services in order to elevate the, the efficacy of, of the person funding the project. Well, I think that is a masterful way to navigate that landmine of a question that I threw at you. So kudos. Uh, we'll probably get some comments online. Don't worry. <laughs> I can't, please drop your comments. I am ready for it. John, I, I, I think this has been an, an awesome conversation. I'm really excited to watch and, and be come alongside as you continue to unpack it, these 12 rules for fundraising and watch people start to adopt them this giving season, but then beyond into just everyday parts of their jobs and as it starts to permeate the nonprofit sphere, because it's it's so critical right now for people to to have resources and frameworks that help them be more effective at their job, not so they can do more with less, but simply so that they can do more with more sanity and more confidence and and less anxiety. And I think ultimately, and this is stepping into something that we don't have time to unpack here, but it's going to be a, a big factor in, in helping the retention issue we have, internal retention with people leaving organizations every, I think the stat is like every 18 months right now is the tenure of most fundraising staff. I think giving great resources to to our sector to help people feel more confident in their roles, feel more comfortable in their roles, feel more equipped in their roles. I'm excited to watch it come out. I can't wait to share about it and dig into it with you as you as you have more and more content on here. So John, thank you again for your time. I know people are going to listen to this and and want to want to learn more with you or from you. Obviously, LinkedIn is a great place to engage with you, but how else can people take the next step, learn more from you? Yeah, if if anyone wants to get all 12 of the rules and the supporting essays that will go along with them, you can click the link in my LinkedIn bio. There's a Google form there to opt in to receiving them as they come out. I have them sketched out in uh, skeleton format, but I want to make sure that they are as valuable as they can be for individuals and pointing towards other people that are deep knowledge practitioners of each one of those principles. For example, one of my favorites is managing your beliefs. I picked up a of specific belief that every time I walk into a new donor interaction, I'm going to leave with a story or a friend or both. And I want to make sure that we're able to share things like that, but then also point towards people like Julie Ordonez, who is, are, is one of the best in the country at helping people manage their beliefs around fundraising. And so that's uh, that's where I point people. Go check out my LinkedIn. There's a There's a link there to opt in for all of these different principles as they come out. Awesome. Well, thank you again, John. This has been a great conversation and a great episode. Thanks, David. Thanks for listening to this episode of Nonstop Nonprofit. This podcast is brought to you by your friends at Fundraise, nonprofit fundraising software built for nonprofit people by nonprofit people. If you'd like to continue the conversation, you can find me on LinkedIn or text me at 714-717-2474. And don't forget to get your next episode the second it hits the internets. Find us on your favorite podcast streaming service, hit that follow button, and leave us a review to help us reach more nonprofit people like you. See you next time.